Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. On today's Integrative Oncology Talk, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Nirupa Raghunathan, who's a MedPeds physician at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and the Director of Pediatric Integrative Medicine. She has a background in pediatrics and adult medicine, which allows her to follow patients from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood. Today, we're going to be discussing the role of integrative oncology in pediatrics, uh, some of the barriers, some of the things that have been found most successful, and we'll also focus on the AYA population. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. Uh, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Raghunathan, who's, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the Director of Pediatric Integrative Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing today? Great. Great. I'm uh, I'm really happy to be talking about this. We don't talk about uh, kids and young adults enough. Um, I think a lot of the conversation in both integrative oncology as well as a lot of times in oncology focus a lot on uh, on adults, but younger people uh, have their own issues that are unique. And so I want to focus on that uh, as, as much as we can today. So let's dive into it. I, I want to ask you, first and foremost, I mean, it's a pretty broad, you know, group of patients that you encounter. You know, you're talking all the way down from, you know, babies and toddlers to really young adults which are all very different from each other, have different needs and issues. Why don't you first start by telling me a little bit about some of the unique um, things that are that are unique about pediatrics um, and how integrative oncology you know, has to work around some of those unique barriers, but also unique needs? So... I actually, just a little background, I actually did... Um, my residency was in med peds and I did both internal medicine and pediatrics. And I always thought that it was so interesting that we have this line that's drawn. And it's like, oh, now you're an adult. And it was like, well, yesterday I was a child. So um, one of the important things is that everything that happens before informs and, and, and moves you forward, right? So um, you can certainly see one of the important, one of the things that de- definitely comes up in pediatrics is kind of where they are in their stage of life and how that both affects that moment, but any kind of future experiences, which is where I think integrative oncology has a lot of potential is both obviously in the active cancer state um, stage, but one of the really lucky things about pediatric cancers is that they're 
success rates have gotten so good that we have a lot of survivors, but that experience continues to inform um, how they live into adults, young adulthood and then adulthood. So from a approach perspective, it's, you know, really thinking developmentally. And, and that is in some ways, a lot of people talk about how um, pediatrics is similar to geriatrics. Like you, you recognize that there's evolution all the time, but particularly like um, the need for assistance, right? You'll see that a lot with a kid as much as you might see with someone who is much older and, and perhaps um, it has multiple comorbidities. Uh, so it is that developmentally a smaller child, you're probably doing a lot more for and with the parents and caregivers than maybe you are with the patient themselves. They don't have as much um, autonomy or really even um, potentially even concept um, that people will shift developmentally through the cancer process. So a teenager may become more youthful and may respond to um, situations the way a seven-year-old would. And you have to be recognized that that is not act of rebellion or being difficult as much as like they just cannot, you know, with the strain and stress of treatment, they cannot really um, effectively cope at, at, at the age of, that they are at, um, at that time, like their um, birth age, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so some of that is just kind of having a vision to where, where you are um, developmentally in them. But there are things that are commonplace across the oncology spectrum, right, is one of the things that's really hard, no matter what age you are, is frankly, like kind of the existential threat that is um, cancer. Uh, yeah. And so in some ways, when you know that developmentally, like a three or four-year-old doesn't really understand that, it's almost easier. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some things that you're like, wow, like this four-year-old is like pretty chill about the fact that they have cancer. Well, I mean, they don't really know what that is. The 13-year-old, on the other hand, who doesn't have anyone their age going through the same thing and then only sees it in older people, oftentimes is the one you have to kind of think about where the supports need to come from. And often I see the teenagers are, and the young adults are really the ones who are prone to the anxiety and kind of um, real benefits from integrative medicine from, again, developmentally from a control perspective, which is commonplace in adults as well. But like that abstract, like it, it is a very literal control. Yeah. That, I mean, I think we, um, I think you, you, you mentioned a lot of things that I that I agree with. Um, first of all, I loved MedPeds too, and I, I love that continuity you were talking about of not having this clear line of demarcation between what is pediatrics and adulthood. And you know, we already have so much crossover in oncology that um, you know it's it's nice to be able to see the whole spectrum. Um, but I, I think for people who have been affected by cancer. Even as a um, adult oncologist, it's very different depending on what the circumstances of the patient are and what age they are, how they uh, approach their diagnosis. And it's not, you can't generalize it to everyone, but, you know, generally patients who are in their 80s approach this very differently than, you know, let's say a 35-year-old who has young children and those kind of things. I have some experience with pediatric uh, oncology. I did some training in uh, PT monk in, in medical school, I did a rotation and uh, I've experienced all the things you're talking about that some of these younger kids, they're just able to 
you know, kind of move on. You know, they don't know anything any different and they don't have that existential, like you said, um, kind of thought process yet. And, you know, they would just play video games uh, on the wards and stuff like that. Whereas the teenagers were really conscious of everything. Um, And it's just a very, very different experience. So I guess you were mentioning the parents as being part of this or the caregiver. How does that play out? You know, it's it's, uh, obviously something I don't, do necessarily, uh, you know, we we deal with families a lot in our adult patients, but generally patients make their own uh, decisions. If you're planning to treat and a child, um, how do you approach that child? And, you know, how does that change also? Is there like a certain age, for example, where you have to get consent from the patient? Or um, is there a certain age where you can just, you know, get consent from the parents? So, so if I was to just kind of go through the evolution of a relationship with a patient and, and their caregiver, I mean, it really depends on their age. Obviously, like an infant, there's very, aside from being able to assess maybe immediate acute symptoms, like you're really, and kind of getting a sense of like, okay, I'm noticing some more irritability, but really what I'm sensing is what is the parent experiencing that the child because of their developmental age is immediately experiencing as well. So if the parent is very, very anxious doing something that is both soothing to, sorry about that, soothing to the patient as well as the parent, right? So a joint experience. So we work with, we're lucky enough to have several um, very experienced like uh, therapists. We have dance movement therapists. We have music therapists. We have uh, mind, body and touch and acupuncture. And so you know, one of our therapists, um, Susie Tortora, is incredibly um, well-versed in infant and will do these joint sessions. So you think you're therapizing, therapizing the uh, patient, but you're actually therapizing the parent and showing them what soothing can look like with when you're frustrated. Like, how do you maintain um, connection? Uh, so, you know, an infant versus you know, really, as you go through the ages, it kind of goes back to almost general pediatrics. You, at certain ages, you're just trying to see like what the relationship is between the parent and the child. Like, are you noticing that they're paying attention to um, patient in the room? You know, if they're three or four years old, I'll always start with the patient just so that they establish and know that I'm there for them. It's not just kind of a conversation of adults out, you know, above their heads, literally. Um, And then, you know, really at around, I've noticed, and it it can depend, it can, it can vary, um, again, depending on where they are in the cancer and cancer treatment process. Like if they've regressed a little bit and they're kind of just pulling and withdrawn, you continue to have a conversation with them, but you're doing a lot of the planning with the parents because they're not really wanting to be present for that conversation. And you even ask, like, how much do you want us to include you? And then when you get to, and really the, what we consider for pediatrics is that um, above the age of 18, 18 is the age of consent, around 13 to 14 is the age of assent. So you have to be on board with what you're getting. And so, um, you know, these are the moments where oftentimes, at least initially, I'll try to have a conversation alone with the patient so that they see that they have um you know, after we've had a conversation about the different things I'm considering, I'll be like, okay, if you guys can go, I'd like to talk and see what they're feeling about it. The interesting thing that happens, and I don't think this is unique to oncology, but probably 
is commonplace across most like significant pediatric medical illness is parents very, very reasonably feeling so at a loss that they, especially in integrative medicine, they look for everything and anything. They want to sign their kids up for every supplement and every mm. potential therapy, oxygen therapy, infrared sauna, et cetera. And, and so sometimes you need that space in that room to like look and see and are you feeling extra burdened by this? Like, is this something that you is actually benefiting you? Are you feeling symptomatic, real symptomatic benefit from it? And so that's where like the initial relationship, then you can, as you continue along and the parent is like, oh, they're eating so much more. And then you turn and say like, what did you eat today? And they're like, oh, it's the same. And you kind of get a sense um, from there, whether an intervention is worthwhile. I also, um, with pediatrics, will probably potentially pull the plug on stuff a little bit faster. Like if something isn't working, it's not working. And, you know, I think, I think there is sometimes value in kind of a buy-in or placebo effect. And so if they're not even bought in, like I can't even figure out how to use the placebo effect of, oh, you, um, you got this multivitamin, like that doesn't even do me the benefit of at least making you feel like you've done something. Cause it's a kid, like they don't, yeah. really think in terms of placebos or, um, oh, I, something I was given something, so I will get better from it. Okay. Uh, so. Let me, let me backtrack a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your own practice. Do you mostly see patients in the outpatient setting or are you guys, um, you know, tell me a little bit about what you guys offer and are you guys doing things in the hospital setting as well? We are very lucky. Um, you know, as maybe some, maybe all of your um, your uh, listeners know MSK has had you know some good support for integrative medicine generally for about twenty years. So we actually for I want to say eighteen of those years, maybe maybe seventeen of those years, have had and and oftentimes um, this exists within like child life departments have had different types of um, supports in the forms of things like music therapy. A lot of programs have art therapists have. Um, play therapists, those types of things that sometimes people would consider fall on under that integrative umbrella. That's always been a part of pediatrics. Um, but we're lucky enough to have our music, dance, movement, um, mind, body, and touch therapies and, and acupuncture fall under IM, which means we get to be cohesive and interdisciplinary. And so we do both inpatient and outpatient. I do as well. So, um, so again, we've had those ther- we've had therapists working with our patients under the IM umbrella for you know at this point a bit more than twenty years. I mean, um, almost twenty years. Uh, but I joined as the pediatric integrative um, medicine physician for consults about two and a half years ago. And so before then, we didn't have a physician. Um, as a part or a um, APP as a part of the uh, program. And what that has allowed us to do is one, have, um, you know, build a little bit of um, interactions with more of the clinicians who are referring. So we have a bit more facts and back and forth with, with, oncologist, with the oncologist and become a bit more cohesive into the plan of care. Um, and I see people outpatient primarily, but I do the you know inpatient consult when necessary because 
sometimes it is a situation where a patient is in and out of the hospital so often that it's hard to leverage a moment to get an outpatient consultation in. Um, and frankly, like, you know, sometimes we do have people who are very much been told, who are unfortunately at the end of life and have been told there's really nothing else and they're struggling, but they're also too sick to go home. And so is there something integrative we can do? So my consultation will include things like supplements, but um, generally speaking, our integrative, we all talk about and are able to kind of refer within our group to the other therapists. So I'll introduce the concepts of things like our mind-body practices, our dance movement and music, massage, acupuncture in our initial visit. And then they can be seen both as an outpatient and during like infusions. And so we have um, an outpatient infusion center. And so the integrative therapists um, are able to see them there. And we have our inpatient um, floors where if you're admitted and there um, an order is placed for our services, um, they're also seen there. So we, again, are very lucky. We've got a you know well-developed program that's becoming more and more you know, cohesive, both from a intra-group perspective, but also externally, like this, this vision of this is integrative medicine and we all work together and we will work with you. That's awesome. Whether, yeah, we're, we're lucky. It sounds like you're pretty integrated into, um, you know, pediatric oncology there. How well is it accepted? And, you know, I know that in general, integrative medicine has a, a strong backing at Memorial Sloan Kettering. How about within pediatrics? That's a great question. So I think that was a little of the reason my coming on, you know, um, Jun, Jun Mao, who again, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, um, kind of recruited me. I was like, we need to figure out a better way to serve pediatrics. Um, at, up until that point, if someone, because the, the truth of the matter is while, you know, there is very demonstrable benefit to the therapies, oftentimes where the oncologist struggle is when someone comes in with a list of supplements and mm. they're just like, I don't know. <laughs> and so I think one of the things that in terms of acceptance is filling that hole then allows me to leverage, oh, but here's all this other stuff that could be really beneficial. So let, let me stop you there because I, I, you know, obviously I see adults and that just happens all the time, right? So that's yeah. about half of my consults is you know, basically a provider saying, look, I don't know what to do with this. You're, this person mm -hmm. wants to take all these supplements. Many people see um, alternative providers and they want me to uh, kind of edit what they're doing and make sure that we're coordinating care. Is that happening in pediatrics too? Oh yeah, for sure. So there's both um, people who are seeing alternatives and have, you know, for one thing, um, knowing that I think in terms of acceptance, knowing that I'm a you know physician or um, advanced practitioner colleague in the in the department of pediatrics who you know you can email you know you can reach out to and then when you ask the patient are you taking supplements and you know that if they say a bunch you have something to to give them i think that's really what it is is like you don't know it was a need until it became came into existence and so i think that that's one of the things i'm learning is that when I first started out, I mean, I 
honestly, I had a half a clinic day a week and I was maybe able to get two people in the door because people just didn't know I existed. But once you start answering a question and they're like, oh, I feel so much, I mean, and by a question, I mean, to the oncologist, like, oh, I feel so much more comfortable. One of the things I do is, and still do, is after a visit, if I'm going to make a recommendation or there's a bunch of herbs that came to there, just drop a short email and say, hey, this is what we talked about. And then it feels like I'm not, I think it's a, a counter experience in some ways to the feeling a lot of um, providers might feel when it's someone from outside. Mm-hmm. So if they're seeing an um, uh, alternative um, provider outside of MSK, outside of the institution, and they don't know how to have that conversation, to have, um, you know, sometimes they just kind of ignore it's happening because they just didn't know what to do about it. But right. In this situation, how how common is it though for kids or children to uh, to be uh, using alternative or complementary therapies? Well, if you look at you know published data on it, so Pediatrics did a review um, about three or four years ago by I believe Heather McClafferty was the lead author on it. Um, you see an increase in age and with chronicity of disease, you can see use of integrative medicines. Uh, integrative therapies. Now that includes everything up to about 60 to 80% in oncology. Now, if I used to say anecdotally from my clinical experience, um, I would say people are coming in with, are referred to me with questions about it, probably 60%, 60 to 70%. Because, and sometimes that question is just a multivitamin, but it, it's a, it's a leaping point to the other thing. Um, but yeah. And one thing I will say, the other kind of I wouldn't say side, but one of the other things that's actually been a leverage point um, in terms of acceptance and interest in referring to integrative um, services is actually CBD. Like mm-hmm. when I first presented the launch of this clinic to our faculty meeting in pediatrics, like the first question I got from one of the attendees was like, will you talk to all of our patients about CBD? Because we don't know what to say. Mm. And so if you have something that you're you know is worthwhile. Like I, I kind of leaned into it. I present about it. I make sure people know that I'm able to answer those questions so they feel more comfortable about it. I went to each of the different disease teams and presented about the kinds of conversations we have. That known entity is is really helpful. And so, so what are um, what are you telling patients and providers about CBD or cannabis in this population? So I present the evidence that we know. For one thing, um, CBD at the very least in terms of pediatric populations, I have some safety data because of the epidiolex trials. So we can say, oh, it's been used in kids for seizures. It's Your child doesn't have that. But at least I know a little bit about the potential interactions. Um, with cannabis, if I'm, if I'm talking to someone younger with THC, I do a lot of counseling on the fact that a high to an adult this is a very different experience for a child. So we really should be making sure that if we want to consider using it the same way we would even a synthetic THC, like a dronabinol, marinol, um, that we're thoughtful to what the experience of being altered would be like for a child, um, and which can be very distressing. And of course, we want to make sure you're aware that because it stays in your system longer, if there isn't a um, altered mental status, the delirium from it, they may have, we've had a handful of people hospitalized because the clearance is not very quick always. And then it kind of evolves as we get older because 
the interesting thing around it is, like you said, I, I see pediatrics, but I also see adolescents and young adults. It's one of the reasons I did med peds because I really like working with adolescent and young adult populations is there's a young adult out there who comes in who's much more familiar with how cannabis health affects them than I <laughs> could predict, right? So um, that ends up being a very different conversation. Like, oh, you know, I understand how it's helped you. How can we make sure, one, we're not worried about interactions with therapies, and two, educate around what we actually do know from, because there is enough of a base of people that want to use it for symptoms, but what they're not always saying is they want to actually use it because they've heard it can treat their cancer or is an important part of treating cancer because of the preclinical work that's, you know, really like talked about in media without really talking about the counter sides of that, which we don't really have great data as to whether it um, can have, you know, negative or interactive effects with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really a lot of those conversations are just a lot of education before going into, all right, in this specific case, does it make sense? Or there are studies showing in like palliative situations that, you know, while it, there isn't a ton of research around improvement in quote unquote quality of life, that in that situation, I may be more liberal because they've been told that there are no other treatment options and they're feeling miserable and their friend gave them an edible and they feel better. And they're like, how do I do this safely? And having some guidance from that can be, you know, really a relief. Um, and so, I, you know, that's something I wanted to do. The beginning of treatment, first, you know, first cycle, first round. No, like we you just don't know enough to be throwing something into the mix that has a much less evidentiary support than let's say Zofra. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about modalities here. Um, what about uh, for stress reduction? You mentioned music and art therapy. Just tell me a little bit about how those are incorporated and, you know, what kind of effects you've seen uh, and, you know, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. What we, tr what we try to do, and we've been doing some work to, um, do some cross skills training is familiarize all of our therapists a little bit with what everyone else does so that there's opportunities for, for because not everyone is there every day. Um, let's say someone was doing work with, with the music team. Um, and then the next day, our mind body therapist who does yoga comes in. Well, is there ways to use music with the yoga in order to um, capitalize on a relationship that's already formed? So um, we, we all have a little bit of understanding of what everyone else does. And so that initial evaluation will be a conversation where they talk about, you know, these are the different, so each of our therapists will do kind of an initial education around the whole service, even if one was specifically requested by the team so that we can make sure we're covered, um, where it needs to be, where that person would, would benefit. And then each of them have their own, like, you know, very well developed and um, thought out uh, approaches, right? So let's take yoga and meditation, you know, depending on the age you might. So our, um, our yoga therapist who uh, works with our younger kids, you know, has done specific pediatric training, but will probably use a guided imagery before doing a breathing exercise with a three-year-old because- mm -hmm instructions you just have to be able to to modulate but we with all of those we definitely see people 
um, respond in the immediate and request repeat um, uh, interactions, particularly with the teenagers and young adults, because they see like a very distinct difference that they continue to meet with their mind body. Whereas something like music therapy um, can be quite, I mean, and certainly true with um, yoga mind body, but I found that in pediatrics, music can often end up being um, very much a, a caregiver experience. Same thing with dance movement because the caregiver gets involved. And so you get to have a little bit more of a family therapeutic, um, you know, experience. And so with music, you know, they'll utilize whatever seems appropriate in the situation. We've actually had some really nice um, outcomes in music with even taking it past listening or active listening to songwriting, um, you know, really finding ways to communicate um, beyond just feeling like a little being feeling soothed by a music, but actually delve into deeper emotions and coping with those emotions, utilizing, um, music, same thing, you know, dance movement. Sometimes I find that it can be quite remarkable for people who hold their trauma in their body. So like, particularly kids, like you can see that if they are very, um, kind of tight and held in that, that is probably a consequence of fear around um and even like a self-protective around procedures around just being in a hospital so little kids and stuff who kind of go internal and so dance movement which is easily accessible because you're not having to have a conversation it's it's about movement and so you you um are dance therapists like work with like how do you get them to move an arm out? And then when you move an arm out, another arm and like how that movement actually allows the release of tension and stress mm-hmm. and even like, uh, frankly, trauma. And so um, a lot of them will we'll see slight differences based upon obviously their ages um, and what are the best ways to literally, the modalities are really about how are we speaking to each other? Some of it's, you know, it's movement in different ways. Movement is a, is a form of talk as much as voices. So when you're incorporating some of these modalities and stuff, um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, and I'm sure you guys have the same philosophy with integrative oncology, is it's evidence-informed, evidence-based, you know, and and how much of that is coming from the adult literature, you know, for, let's say, let's give an example of acupuncture or neuropathy, for example, you know, will you basically take that uh, adult study and uh, implement some of those practices in pediatrics, or do you do you feel like you have to have separate studies in the pediatric population, given just the differences between the patient population? So, if we were we could take the acupuncture example um, with things like acupuncture, yoga, meditation, I have a lower um, threshold for using adult literature because the traditions they come out of do have pediatric translations right so acupuncture in adults um, has a pediatric translation in out of traditional chinese medicine and acupuncture practices and so you already have that existing and so um and then i think some of it also depends on potential harms so while the benefit data is in adults the potential harms are quite low in something like um, implementing a yoga practice or implementing um you know utilizing music therapy or um acupuncture if you go to the supplement side, that's a whole other thing because, you know, the, um, you know, liver mechanics and drug clearance times and things like that are very different. And so 
Um, I don't usually just half a dose, let's say, for pediatrics. I really want to see whether there's any existing data on dosing, um, even if it's outside of the. So often it's a it's a it's a merging of two. Like if I see adult data that's beneficial to something, um, let's say like just throwing something out of my head, like ginseng for energy. And then I want to see, okay, maybe ginseng wasn't used for energy and cancer. Well, I mean, cancer-related fatigue for for ginseng. But it's been used in kids in other spaces. And there is a pediatric dosing that then I can say, all right, we have an opportunity to try this with, of course, awareness of, is it their potential for interaction? What should we be, you know, on top of? So that's a little bit different. um, But it really is ends up being in addition to being evidence informed is a calculus on benefits and potential benefits and potential harm. And yeah. do I think that that math works out? And every person is different, you know, some, you know, 21 year olds are like, you give them all the information, they're consentable. And you say, you know, this does have a bit more of a potential risk, but um, it could benefit you. And they get to make a little bit of that decision themselves. I mean, obviously, like with the thought to dosing and things like that. But I mean, a 21 year old, you can do adult doses. Right. No, it just it must be just an extra challenge, you know, because it's already challenging enough because we often, you know, especially with natural products, like you mentioned, we just don't have good answers for dosing and um, different people are, you know, stand on different edges of the spectrum in terms of how they view this. But, you know, safety versus benefit and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you have to extrapolate some of that, you know, kind of thought process even further. I do. But I will also say because there is much less studied in terms of most things with kids, I also have a much finer, like smaller group of things I can even start with. Like, I don't go anywhere near St. John's board. I'm like, I don't like, there's no way I could have enough data on this to think like we should use this in a pediatric patient. But sometimes I'm lucky, like ginger, there's some really great evidence in pediatric and, you know, parents love it because they, it is so hard to get a kid to take ginger like the taste of ginger is so hard. And so if I'm able to say, oh, but we have like ginger capsules and we can work with them in order to support CINV, chemo nausea, induced nausea and vomiting. And I've had some people have incredible benefits from it. And it was studied in a sarcoma population in pediatrics. So I can actually have dosing too. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I want to talk a little bit, you, you mentioned the AYA population. So for anybody who doesn't know, that's um, adolescent and young adults, and that I think is from 15 to 39 years old. A pretty broad range. Again, those are very different groups of people. I mean, I think that uh, you know somebody who's in their 30s uh, is just totally different than somebody who's in their teens. Talk to me a little bit about you know some of the unique issues that are faced with cancer in that population and how you can kind of approach them, you know, in in a different way and and you know, also how you follow those patients up after they're done with their treatment. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it harkens back to kind of developmental stages and what's likely going on in their lives. And so certainly the early end of that spectrum is around identity and autonomy, right? And so a lot of the approach there is validating, one, that their concern, their identity is going to become cancer patient. Like they haven't even established their identity to begin with. To then have it be um, always be identified with something that is illness or 
feels like it's lesser than is a very challenging thing to a um, a person who's just building and fir- and uh, firming up their self esteem. Because as all of us probably listening know, like teenage years are not easy years to begin with. And so that is, you know, kind of how you how I would start an approach is to really think, okay, they're probably starting with identity. How do you like? validate the other sides of things that aren't just around the cancer and autonomy. So a lot of control, um, you know, how do I um, make sure I'm heard and what I want is important. And especially between that 15 to 18, even 15 to 21, depending on um, their kind of life status, how are they still living at home and things like that? They feel that they have to, they have, even as they want to assert autonomy, they're struggling with the fact that they don't have maybe as much knowledge or medical savvy and are reliant on their parents. You know, um, if you're 20 years old, like you might be making your appointments, but maybe your parents are making all your appointments and they're the ones who decided which, excuse me, which doctor you're going to go with, or if there's like two potential options for treatment, like which treatment to take, mm-hmm. like they may not feel equipped to make those. And so, um, giving them sense of controls in smaller ways is one way I would particularly approach that. And then oftentimes when you get into the ages of like 21 to 39, really I find while maybe closer to 23, 24, like usually the post-college age, so kind of, but also reaching the time frame where um, you are kind of out of that adolescent developmental stage. Um, so about 23, 24 and on, a lot is informed by their age, but actually a lot is informed by their lifestyle in some ways. Like, is this a person, you know, there are people who are, you know, married and have kids at 26 and that person has much more in common with the same thing at 39 than, and maybe a 38 year old who is single and whose work is really primary has a lot more in common than someone who's 22. And so you're understanding a lot more about their lifestyle. And then utilizing that to help, you know, guide them or support them in what they think is, has priority. Um, and so that's really about this idea of, you know, ages, um, like your mid twenties to your late thirties being establishing yourself, your, um, your situation, your environment. Right. And a lot of people prioritize different things and you get a sense of that when you have these conversations around, well, you know, we're sitting down and they're talking about the worried about their symptoms and they're, you know, one person's worried about, um, you know, sleep because they have an infant at home and they never get sleep anyways. Another person's worried about, um, you know, sleep because they have a really stressful job and it's really important for them to be able to make the job work. And so those are two different situations that would probably call for slightly different. I mean, you may continue to use the same approaches, but um, different ways to frame them um, so that they, uh, you know, consider them as a part of their therapeutic plan. Um, How important, um, so there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of existential, you mentioned questions, you know, for, for anybody, but especially at these ages to deal with and grapple with. How important is, is it to have a support group with people from your own age group, especially for young adults? I think it's really important. I'm, I'm still surprised that they don't always um, want it. There's, there's still a lot of, you know, hesitation around if my support group is 
if you, if you mean specifically around like support group with people who are going through the same thing, there are a lot of people who feel like if I'm in a cancer support group, even if it's people my own age, I am definitively accepting that I had cancer. And so you're often like wading through some little bit of denial, a little bit of like, but my life will be exactly the same. Like, why would I need the support group? Hmm. But it is absolutely crucial. What if, if they're not um, open or interested in that, like there's only so much you can do to make someone show up at a support group. You bring it up over and over again, but it is absolutely important for them to have um, peers in some form, whether it's their existing friends, whether um, it's a support group, whether it's people they make friends with, like in in hospital settings or clinical settings, who can understand in that moment, not the way I do, like thinking back on when I was 22, what, why the struggle about losing your hair is so significant to someone who just started being on a dating app, yeah. right? Like right. that feeling, like it, it isn't super helpful for me to say, oh, but like, if they're good people, they're going to like you anyway. Right, like, right. For someone who's 22 who feels like this is who I am, that's not super helpful. And so having somebody who just gets it and is willing to sit and listen to it, you know, who's, you know, also maybe in similar and not necessarily cancer circumstances, but just like in that similar stage of life. Yeah, yeah it's really important. Well, I, I want to ask you like an anecdotal question, just because <laughs> I, I have my own experience dealing with adults that almost generationally, you can kind of tell what kind of patients are open to various things. And, you know, our older patients are getting more and more open to medical, uh, you know, cannabis use mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, complementary therapies. But many, for many of them, they're kind of, you know, getting open to this just now. Whereas I think mm -hmm. a lot of um, a lot of younger people, younger adults, uh, seem to know more about some of these things. What's your experience with just generationally how well accepted integrative oncology is in in young adults, and then also these children and parents of the children? So integrative oncology is, I think, you know, in some ways, I I, I have an internal battle around the kind of wellness industry. I find that it's challenging to like see some stuff out there and you know just <laughs> shake my head. But, it's, you know, like, you, can't like hear, you can't see me on the audio podcast, <laughs> but I'm shaking my head. Um, but, you know, but in some ways it has introduced terminology and ways for me to frame a conversation that makes it even easier. Right. So if I kind of use the idea that, um, you know, counseling and using integrative strategies are helpful and the way I frame it is like around what, what I consider like a holistic approach a con the context in which disease takes place. And it's diet, it's exercise, it's sleep and stress and how all those things interact with each other. Because of things like the wellness industry, that holistic approach, people are like, oh my God, of course, that's great. And so I do see that that resonates with so many people because they feel like it is language that they are familiar with, specifically for people who are um, adolescent, young adult and Frankly, like if I'm talking about a pediatric patient that's five, very likely their parent is a young adult, right? Like we're not, I mean, sometimes, you know, you put a teenage child, you might have a parent who's in their 50s, but more often than not, the parents also run in that AYA 
um, or more YA like age range. And so there is a lot more familiarity with it. There's, you know, what is out on things like Instagram and stuff that make those um, uh, approaches really accepted. Um, what I think is, uh, what I think is challenging sometimes for me is that it is so accepted, but also we are in a very, very scientific field. Cancer and cancer treatment is heavily like, you know, so many research papers, so many ways. And so people figure out PubMed very quickly and they'll just put like a word, a, a supplement, infrared, oxygen therapy, and the cancer, and they'll come up with eight different things. Mm -hmm. And it ends up being these conversations while they're very open to them, end up sometimes you know, actually coming back down to kind of the very basics of educating, like what makes a good scientific paper? Why is this not translatable to a human being when it's a cell culture and you're, you're, you know, and, and so I think in some ways there's a double side to that, right? Like with an older generation, um, you know, like you were mentioning your older adults, there is a sense of um, being okay with some of the paternalism of medicine that does not happen. They're like, no, I have all this information. Like, why wouldn't I counterpoint what you have? And so in some ways, the acceptance is great, but also, you know, allows for all these opportunities to be like, all right, like, like let's drill down on this, this data you're presenting to me and um, educate around it. Sounds good. I, I deal with that in my older patients too, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, PubMed, I mean, while it's made things easier for right. me to find stuff, you know, a search. So I want to finish with, uh, you know, it, first of all, it sounds like great work. Uh, it sounds like you really can help people. How are you and other people, you know, you're a part of the uh, pediatric SIG, I think, for Society for Integrative Oncology. Mm -hmm. How are you guys working to further this field? And what is it looking like uh, in other places and also internationally? And what are the, some of the, thing, the ideas you have um, around how we can you know, better serve our patients elsewhere? That's a great question. So it's really interesting. Um, you know, in our PEDSIG, we have representation from a couple of different countries, um, uh, Dr. Gelman from Brazil. Um, you know, we, we actually last year were lucky enough to work with them and the rest of our group, as well as some um, providers in uh, Germany to publish a, you know, universal definition to pediatric integrative oncology, which I will read to you right now, um, which is, it provides a relationship-centered, evidence-informed, personalized approach to the whole child and family system utilizing mind and body practices, natural products, and or lifestyle modifications alongside conventional oncology care. Um, pediatric integrative oncology is offered throughout the illness trajectory to optimize health and wellness, enhance healing, minimize suffering, improve quality of life, empower children and families, become active participants before, during, and beyond cancer treatment. And so... We wanted to be very encompassing of all the different ways integrative oncology is, is practiced across, around the world because you're right, international is absolutely what it is because so much of integrative oncology is culture informed, right? What someone may gravitate to towards in Brazil from traditional medicines there and traditional approaches is different from India, is different from Europe. In Europe, there's, you know, 
heavily researched mistletoe. And so if I have someone come in from Europe, from particularly from Germany to the United States, and they've got all this data around how they've already started their mistletoe program, and you're just like, oh, I, how? Um, and so it is crucial for us to learn from each other um, because that is where hopefully in the future we find our way to having like, you know, multi country, nevertheless, you know, multi-institutional like studies of some of this, we learn from each other, um, you know, particularly because there is more and more interest in, um, you know, implementing things like um, uh, nature experiences or, you know, these very um, antithetical to, you know, this bustle of, of Western life. Um, thing and you want to be able to say oh this is based out of research and let's say in um in south america let's say so um what we are trying to do at this at this phase we publish definition is work towards understanding um as much as possible the current state of people like let's say cancer institutions already um that exist out there whether they do feel like they have any kind of integrative um support laying the groundwork to saying, okay, then how do you help programs build them? Um, some of it is finding practitioners that are willing to kind of work in that space. And we definitely have some of those in our PED SIG. Some of it's connecting with um, other groups and other organizations. So um, in the, one of the um, ASPO is like the American Society of PEDS, Hemonk. They have a um, uh, integrative group so does AAP. And so you, you know, hope to form collaborations there so that you are multi-institutional in places where maybe SIO is stronger, another place ASPO is. So I think those are the right now, the nearer term, of course, you know, in my dream of dreams, um, in, in terms of the PEDSIG, I would love to us for us to get to a place of, um, you know, compiling what we know in different situations, different studies, and even get into a guideline place. Because I think when it comes down to it, so before I did integrative medicine, I, I worked in survivorship. And um, you'd mentioned like, what do you do long, lifelong? And I, I think that's another conversation we're running a little on time. But one of the things that was really great about survivorship is that, you know, 30, you know, 30 years ago, when data started coming in about what long-term outcomes were, they put together guidelines and they update them periodically. And a oncologist in a small town in, you know, northern um, Canada can go online and find this information. And I think that's where people are so lost that they sometimes don't look to bring in integrative medicine into pediatrics because they're just like, I don't even know where I would start. And I think guidelines are a really important part of that. So I hope we get to that place. Um, that would be kind of the the dream. <laughs> Well, it's great. It definitely sounds like um, you know you're you're really contributing a lot to to this field, and that there's Thank a lot you. of work to be done. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, because I I would feel overwhelmed too. I mean, just where do you start? What's safe? Uh, I think all these things yeah. need to be worked out, and um, and I'm sure they will. You know, because we we definitely uh, need to incorporate this kind of care in, in pediatrics as well as adults. So um, I really appreciate you joining me today. Um, and, thank you uh, for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for everything that you're doing for SIO and for the field. And um, thank you for joining me. <laughs>